This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The big story today involves Ron DeSantis. No, not about the debate. We'll get to that in a couple moments. Ron DeSantis is trying to get $1 million out of his state budget to file a lawsuit about the way that Florida State University, you'll recall, undefeated for the season and yet passed over for the playoffs. He wants to sue the College Football Playoff Committee. Although, they'll be finished with the playoffs and the championship months before a budget is approved. So telling folks in Florida, my first grader, my fifth grader, my preschooler, they're all Knowles, referring to the Seminoles. And they are big time fans and they do the tomahawk chop and they were not happy. We're going to set aside one million and let the chips fall where they may. Now, it's the ultimate grandstanding move. And by the way, I think it's an outrage that Florida State didn't get a playoff berth. You can't do better than winning every game. And it just undermined, it just underscores the subjective scam of just having a bunch of people on a committee pick who they think are the best teams and why play the games? Why play the games? All right. You know, on a more somber note, I had the various channels on yesterday doing my work, getting ready for the show. And um, all of a sudden, breaking news of all too familiar variety. A gunman killing six people in Texas, in Austin and San Antonio. And so everybody was live with that. Then, you know, I went out of the room uh, for a while, out of the office, and came back, doing some more work. And that was superseded by another bit of breaking news, an active shooter on the campus of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. At least three people dead. I guess a total of three people dead. Plus, the suspect died in a confrontation with police. And then by this morning, you know, there's a little bit of follow-up here and there. It just shows you how inert we have all become to these mass shootings. I mean, obviously, there was a time when six people killed in Texas or an active shooter on a college campus would be a story that would dominate for days. And because there's not going to be any further legislation out of Congress— I mean, President Biden and Kamala Harris did put out statements about this. It's just, I I hate the way it's become just, oh, there they go again, part of the fabric of our society. You know, in the uh, Texas shootings, at least least part of them were not that far from Uvalde. And the Las Vegas shooting on the campus was not that far from 
the biggest mass murder, I believe, in American history, that shooting uh, at a hotel, I guess, in Las Vegas. So with that, let me move on to story number one. Now, I have to put up a disclaimer here. The debate, which was organized and carried by News Nation, which uh, has a, a pretty small audience. It's an upstart new cable network. Chris Cuomo and a few other prominent names work there. So the audience for this debate last night, although, you know, you'll see clips of it all day uh, for at least a couple of days on TV, pundits talking about it, who did well, who did not so well. But it's going to have a pretty small audience. You could only watch on News Nation, which this is not a criticism, but a lot of people probably don't know what number the channel is on, on their cable system. Or the CW network, part of the same company, or you could have watched it online. But I have to say, News Nation did a really good job. It was a really, uh, you know, it was an entertaining debate. It was a debate with an awful lot of clashes. And the moderators did well, led by Megyn Kelly, who knows how to do this. Uh, also, Elizabeth Vargas, formerly of ABC, now with News Nation. And Eliana Johnson of the Washington Free Beacon. I mean, they asked a lot of good questions. But they also had the advantage of having only four people on stage. It's different when you start out and you've got 11 and you've got to get to, you know, Doug Burgum. This was, it was evident from the first 60 seconds that Nikki Haley was going to get most of the attacks. That she is perceived, rightly or wrongly, as, I was going to say the front runner, but obviously she's not the front runner. She may be now leading the group of four, but all of them are way behind Donald Trump, way behind in the national polls. And it's a little more competitive, but even if you look at Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, the former president has a sizable lead. And look, no matter how much momentum Nikki Haley has now, if she loses her home state of South Carolina to Donald Trump, her campaign's over. The debate was driven in a way, putting the moderators aside, by Chris Christie. His strongest performance after three earlier debates. This is the last one, by the way. I mean, Iowa caucuses are next month. I don't know if there's even going to be another debate. Kind of depends on the competitive standing. I mean, there continue to be debates during the primaries when it was uh, Obama versus Hillary or anything where, you know, there's a real horse race going on. And anyway, Christie just was constantly slamming the other three. He would say, these guys, these guys don't want to go after Donald Trump. I'm the only one who's willing to do that. They won't do it. They're too scared. And he's the one who has to be beaten. So here's Politico. Quoting Christie, who's completely ignored by the moderators at the outset. And I understand he's probably he's the lowest in the polls, although Ramaswamy may be even lower, depending on which poll you look at. Okay, Politico. 
Uh, Christy, I'm looking at my watch now. We're 17 minutes into this debate, and except for your little speech in the beginning, I forget who he was referring to, we've had these three acting as if the race is between the four of us. And he returned to that theme more than once. And at one point, later in the debate in Alabama, Christy called out Ron DeSantis. Our, you know, Christy says, Donald Trump is unfit for office. His conduct is unacceptable. Are you willing to say whether or not you believe he's fit for office? And DeSantis deflected by saying, well, we need a younger candidate. And uh, we have too many old people, you know, just basically saying that Trump's age is the biggest factor in why you shouldn't vote for him. But he refused to address the question more than once in that back and forth. He wouldn't he wouldn't address it. He wouldn't say I mean, he doesn't want to pronounce Trump fit for office, but he doesn't want to say unfit because he thinks he's in a position to inherit a lot of previous Trump supporters who perhaps want to move on from the 45th president. Now, Politico says Trump was occasionally referenced and obliquely criticized. Ron DeSantis saying uh, Trump didn't put up the border wall as he had promised. Nikki Haley saying he was good on trade, but bad on everything else related to China. But largely, says Politico, he skated. The man who wasn't there again. Remember when there was this great debate? Oh, people are going to be so insulted he doesn't go to these debates. Well, I mean, he's paid no price. He's, he's made everybody else look like a battle for second place, at least at this moment. So at one point, Megyn Kelly said, I got to get a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Trump. But when they came back, she asked about Trump's call for a Muslim ban, coming, people coming into this country. Haley said, well, she would live in an, uh, immigration without applying ideological screening. DeSantis then jumped in and criticized Haley, not Trump. Again, Christie gets a chance, talks about the Trump town hall with Sean Hannity and how he would be a dictator, but only on day one. And Christie says, there's no mystery about what he wants to do. This is an angry, bitter man. And here it is. We need somebody who is younger, says DeSantis. Um, So, by the way, I thought Nikki Haley handled herself really well. She was mostly playing defense, and she knew that going in. I thought DeSantis, who in the other debates have tried to remain above the fray, was much more on the attack. Well, that's what you have to do in these debates. You know, maybe DeSantis thought, look, I'm the obvious alternative to Trump, and the polls show that's no longer the case. That, in fact, was Megyn Kelly's first question. You know, you've plummeted in the polls. What realistic path do you have to winning this nomination? At one point, when the candidates were beating up on her, the former U.N. ambassador said, I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that, which is a very cool line. Vivek Ramaswamy I'm sorry, you know, when he first got into this race, I thought he's an interesting guy, good debater. He was an embarrassment. He was so insulting of everybody on that stage that I don't know what he was trying to accomplish. And at one point, he took a crack 
at Nikki Haley's intelligence. And all had to do with, could you name the three provinces in Ukraine uh, that the Russians have taken over? And then Chris Christie, which I've seen a number of women say they thought this was his best moment. He defended Nikki Haley. He says, look, we can disagree on policy. Nikki and I disagree on lots of things. But this is a smart, accomplished woman. And stop attacking her. At another point, I mean, Ramaswamy was just out of control. He called Nikki Haley a fascist. And, you know, she was the captive of donors and all of that. Called her a fascist. In a, a long rant, it maybe just seemed long because, you know, the initial comments were all 60 seconds. And then one of the moderators said, you know, Governor Haley, do you want to respond? And she said, no, waste of my time. And I thought that was really astute. Like, she doesn't need to get into a spitting match with a guy who not only spends a lot of time insulting her. Remember in the last debate, she called him scum because he brought up her daughter. Um, And then Christie just delivered what I thought was almost a knockout blow, turning to Wamaswamy and saying... This is the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. (laughs) And you know the others on the stage wanted to, you know, cheer. So what does Ramaswamy do? Comes back with a a dig at Christie's weight. Why don't you just go have a good meal and get out of the race? And then even though they're not supposed to use props, Ramaswamy held up his notepad where he had written, Nikki equals corrupt. And he had no proof of corruption by her. It's just, oh, you know, she's going to do what the donors want. And she was on the board of Boeing, yeah, for eight months. And then she quit, as she pointed out, because she doesn't believe in corporate bailouts. And Boeing was, I guess, interested in getting one. But the lowest moment, I'm not, I'm just getting warmed up by her folks. The lowest moment for Vivek, I, I couldn't believe that he actually said this on a public stage in front of cameras and microphones. He talked about a growing indication that January 6th was an inside job, meaning, and Trump has flirted with this, it's a conspiracy theory, it's blanking ridiculous, meaning that there were law enforcement or deep state people that triggered the Capitol riot to hurt Donald Trump. You know, unlike everything you've seen, people breaking into the Capitol, roaming, occupying Nancy Pelosi's office, 140 police officers assaulted. Oh, it was an inside job. He's obviously a smart guy. Why would he go there? What additional votes is he going to get by challenging what happened on January 6th, 20? 21. Just don't believe it. And maybe it's his way of backing up Trump since he virtually never criticizes Trump. All right, everyone's got their, here are five takeaways, here are seven takeaways. You know, it used to be people would just write stories. It'd be a straight news story and a news analysis. And now we got to give you the takeaways. It all started with the USA Today uh, infographics. Anyway, New York Times. DeSantis has diminished standing and the race was clear. From the bruising opening question from Megyn Kelly. 
But DeSantis stuck with his risk-averse strategy toward Trump. He saved his sharpest words for attacks on Haley. He more than once invoked her ties to donors. Nikki will cave to those big donors when it counts, he said. And she said he's mad because Wall Street donors used to support him and now they support me. When Haley criticized Trump for adding to the national debt, which he did hugely, DeSantis said, well, it's the fault of both parties in Washington. New York Times says that the boos that rang out more than once when Christie spoke, taking on Trump in very stark language, were another reminder that despite his manifest skills as a campaigner, he remains out of the mainstream of the modern Republican Party, which is largely the Trump Republican Party, and I don't disagree with that. Well, here's the exact quote from Vivek. January 6th now does look like it was an inside job. And that's almost disqualifying, in my view. All right, Washington Post takeaways. Now, speaking of the man who wasn't there in Alabama, the things that he said to Sean Hannity are absolutely reverberating, and the White House is jumping all over it, except this is the problem with Joe Biden and his political skills or lack thereof. Why is it putting out, uh, you know, statements by deputy press secretaries? Should take Trump seriously. Well, if the president of the United States, who wants to beat the former president of the United States, would come out and say that on camera, it would drive the news for a couple of days. But Joe Biden has largely been off camera, I think maybe because of the growing up unpopularity of both wars that the United States is helping to fund. And he says sharper things at these fundraisers, but there's no video and there's no audio. And people say, oh, President Biden said last night at the fundraiser, blah, blah, blah. You want to have impact, you have a mighty bully pulpit. Anyway, here's the Washington Post piece saying Donald Trump's campaign asked allies on the Hill in recent days to publicly counter criticism that he would govern like a dictator in a second term, according to sources. Yet on Tuesday, Trump reignited that criticism, pressed twice on the topic uh, by Hannity, including on whether he would, quote, never abuse power as retribution against anybody, Trump replied, except for day one. And then he went on to talk about closing the border and drilling for oil. Trump's continued embrace of authoritarian rhetoric and ideas and refusal to fully rebuke some dire warnings about how he'd govern in a second term um, is becoming a big deal, essentially. And then the Washington Post goes through, you know, Trump's aides are drafting uh, plans to invoke the Insurrection Act, and it goes through various things. All fair game. But Just as he was pushing back on these things, you know, came those remarks, except on day one. The Trump campaign declined to comment on the record for this story. A Trump campaign advisor said, it's funny to watch the lamestream media go crazy over closing the borders and drilling for energy, which, of course, 
that's not the focus of the mainstream media or the lamestream media going crazy. Okay, here, just as I was referring to it, here it is in my notes. Biden at uh, a couple of Boston fundraisers. Well, there was the comment that has since, I think, reverberated against him. If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we cannot let him win. And then he was asked by reporters uh, in, in the darkness uh, outside the helicopter, I guess, or the airplane. Um, you know, would you drop out if Trump dropped out? And, and the president said no, that not, you know, that may be been a major factor in his running. But this is why it's too late, basically, for him to leave, although he said 50 other Democrats could be Trump. And then at the fundraiser, Biden said he's running against an election denier in chief who's determined to destroy American democracy. Trump's not even hiding the ball anymore, Biden said. He's telling us exactly what he wants to do. He's making no bones about it. But it's not on camera. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number two, also speaking of Joe Biden, he gave a uh, little speech yesterday afternoon calling on, urging, beseeching Republicans on the Hill to put aside what he called petty partisan angry politics and pass this multi-billion dollar aid package for Ukraine. He talked a lot about, you know, how otherwise it would be enabling Vladimir Putin, who won't stop with Ukraine. The U.S. aid is supposed to run out at the end of this month. And he said, this cannot wait. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday research. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. Now, Biden did say, you know, the Republicans, well, he said the Republicans think they can get everything they want without any bipartisan compromise. That's not the answer. They're willing to literally kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield. I'm willing to make significant compromises on the border. Like, that's what this is about. Republicans want certain changes to border policy that the Dems don't want. They have been negotiating. Negotiations have fallen apart. And that's their price for going along with the military aid to Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan being the same package. So he gives that speech. And then a few hours later, the package gets voted down. 49 to 51, not even close to the 60 vote threshold. Chuck Schumer tried to barter with Republicans saying they could offer an amendment on the border. And he would make sure it was part of the bill. But Republicans are just digging in their heels here. And these are these are Senate Republicans, you know, led by Mitch McConnell, who is pro-military aid to Ukraine. This is not, you know, the House hardliners. And even the Senate Republicans, who tend to be a little bit more open to bipartisan compromise, they couldn't get this done either. And so Biden's speech didn't work. Meanwhile, Israel pressing, switching to the other war now, Israel pressing on with its pursuit of top Hamas leaders in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Benjamin Netanyahu saying Israeli troops had surrounded the home of Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, the mastermind of the October 7th attacks and brutal attacks, as you well know, against Israel. 
Netanyahu said he can escape, but it's only a matter of time until we reach him. Um, Israel put out a photo of a bunch of Hamas leaders having a meal in their tunnels, and there were five red circles around five of those leaders that Israel says it has killed. So that's where we are, literally hand-to-hand combat. Number three, Kevin McCarthy is out. He's quitting. He's quitting at the end of this month. And I understand that, you know, you're wielding power. You think you were unsuccessfully ousted. I mean, here you were, the guy, Speaker of the House. Your tenure cut short after what, eight months, nine months? And unlike Nancy Pelosi, who at least voluntarily stepped down, he doesn't want to hang around as a backbencher. He doesn't have much of a relationship with Mike Johnson, so he can't even be a behind-the-scenes whisperer. But this column by Jim Garrity, writing in the Washington Post, starts off with a quote, October 6th, Kevin McCarthy, freshly ousted as House Speaker, tells reporters, no, I'm not resigning. I'm staying, so don't worry. We're going to keep the majority. I'm going to help the people I got here, and we're going to expand it. Then, yesterday, Wall Street Journal op-ed. I've decided to depart the House at the end of this year to serve America in new ways. So as Garrity says, no doubt it stinks to be a former speaker forced to work alongside colleagues who voted to remove you from your dream job. And McCarthy must be irritated watching uh, Speaker Mike Johnson make more or less the same decisions McCarthy made with much less grumbling and rebellion from the lights of Matt Gates and the Freedom Caucus. Must be maddening to hear for McCarthy to hear Trump explain why he chose not to rescue McCarthy's speakership, if indeed he could have done that. Because McCarthy wasn't willing to introduce legislation to, quote, expunge Trump's two impeachments. But come on, man. <laughs> two months after pledging to everyone that you are not going to resign and say that you're going to stay in the House, you pull the lever on the ejector seat? Whatever happened to helping the people I got here? Whatever happened to expanding the majority? Because in the months before there's a special election to replace McCarthy in the Bakersfield, California area, which is very Republicans, that's not an issue. But the razor thin margin, as we often call it in the cliche, is just we'll get at the end of this month one vote smaller. And with the expulsion of George Santos, I think down to three Republicans that anybody can lose before the Democrats would have the advantage. Says Garrity, the guy who pledged to expand the GOP majority is making it smaller. Hard to believe anyone ever doubted McCarthy's leadership, huh? I'm a little more sympathetic to why he wants to leave, but of course he could have just stuck it out for another year. Undoubtedly he wants to go make some money. And we'll see if he, how much, uh, to what extent he remains a public figure. Story four, Hunter Biden's lawyer and House Republicans were exchanging angry statements over whether or not the president's son is going to testify next week. Remember, Hunter said, sure, I'll testify in public. And committee chairman Jim Comer said, no, you won't. You'll testify 
behind closed doors for a deposition because that's what the subpoena says. Abby Lowell, the uh, lawyer for Hunter, said again, open hearing, we're there. He included several quotes in his letter from Comer with the congressman saying he would welcome the opportunity to have Hunter Biden and others testify in public or private, quote, whichever they choose. What happened to that stance? Jim Jordan himself ignored a subpoena last year from the House January 6th committee. So, you know, it's a, it's a partisan game both parties play. When you're in the majority, you demand that everybody show up when you subpoena them. And when you're in the minority, you have a different view. So if I had to bet money, I would say there will be no Hunter Biden testimony next week. It's hard for the Republicans to climb down from their stance. But I do think he'll eventually testify in some form. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. And finally, story five. The passing of Norman Lear at the age of 101. Family spokesman didn't provide, provide an immediate cause of death. You know, when you're 101 years old, I don't know that you have to. Now, this is a guy who went on in his later years to found the liberal group People for the American Way. So a lot of people like that. A lot of people didn't like that. But I can't even begin to describe how important he was as a maker of television. Utterly transformed the TV landscape. I mean, back in 1970, 71, when he got this show on the air, all in the family, essentially mocking the dad in the family, Archie Bunker, an all-American bigot, didn't like blacks, didn't like gays, And you had a great cast. Uh, Rob Reiner, who played the son-in-law, also known on the show as Meathead, uh, put out a very moving statement about how Norman Lear had been like a second father to him. All these comedians, John Stewart and others, praising Norman Lear. But you had to understand that at that point, as the 70s were beginning, Television shows just stayed away from controversy. They avoided it like the plague. They didn't deal with these kinds of issues. Absolutely not. You know, uh, going back a few years earlier, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore slept in separate beds. That was, you know, it was the Aussie, it was the end of the Ozzy and Harriet era. Not in terms of that show being on, but in terms of the template. And yet along comes Norman Lear, Puts on All in the Family, also Sanford and Sons, also Maud, also uh, the Jeffersons. So, as the Washington Post obit says, his legend was sealed in the 70s when he created a handful of shows that transformed the television medium into a fractious national town meeting and showcased the American family in all its hopes and dysfunctions. Racial prejudice, divorce, rape, Black inner-city struggle, upward social mobility, themes almost non-existent on commercial television were suddenly brought to compelling life. At one time, I believe it says, oh, he had seven hit sitcoms on the air 
all at one time. People recognized him as much as they recognized the stars of these shows. He guest hosted on SNL. He's a guy who was trying to make it for years. And he pitched the show in 69 to ABC. Network commissioned two pilots. But ABC said, ah, it's too risky. We're not doing it. Mickey Rooney, who was uh, Norman Lear's first idea to play the lead, ended up being Carol O'Connor playing Archie Bunker, said to Norman, you're going to get killed in the streets. They're going to shoot you dead. Then Lear took the show to CBS, which was looking for younger urban viewers. It premiered at the very beginning of 1971. Uh, it's just talking about the other actors here. His angelic wife, Edith. Oh, Archie. His activist daughter, Gloria, played by Sally Struthers. And his pinko Pollock son-in-law, the aforementioned uh, Rob Reiner, who's been on my show and is just, you know, he's a great comedian as well as director and so forth. Archie Bunker railed against the prevailing social winds in language that still has the power to shock. In the first episode, he said, and forgive me for repeating these slurs, but just to give you the idea, if your spicks and your spades want their rightful share of the American dream, let them get out of there and hustle for it like I done. I didn't have no people marching and protesting to get me my job. No, said Edith. His uncle got him for him. What a comeback. It was a very funny show that dealt with really, you know, the kind of stuff we all take for granted now. Movies and streaming. Took five months and All in the Family was the number one show in America. And here's interesting. Here's something I had no idea, just to wrap this up. Norman Lear said the character of Archie Bunker was based on his own father, who regularly told his wife to stifle it. That was a line that the Archie character used, and who called his son the laziest white kid I ever seen. My father and I fought all these battles. Uh, he was quoted as the same back in 1973. I thought, my God, if only I could get this kind of thing on American television. Well, he did. Norman Lear has left us at the age of 101. And how do these people get to live so long? <laughs> we should all be so lucky. Hey, thanks for staying along for the ride. I just, I could not do Norman Lear because of the, the cultural turning point that his shows, and particularly All in the Family, represented. I always appreciate your time. You've got plenty of things to do. If you're doing other things while you listen to the podcast, that's cool with me. And I'll be back here with even more Buzzmeter. We'll see you tomorrow. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.